John Doberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Boosting Your Success with Aerially Seeded Cover Crops, is brought to you by Calmer Cornheads. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app to use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Calmer Cornheads for sponsoring today's episode. Calmer Cornheads is home of the world's first 12 and 15 inch cornheads and residue management upgrade kits. Their patented BT chopper stalk rolls cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti-like residue for accelerated decomposition and have been voted to the No-Till Product of the Year list five times by farmers across America. As your cornhead specialist, Calmer Cornheads is committed to providing proven solutions to a variety of your harvesting problems and offers a 100% satisfaction guarantee. For more information, visit calmercornheads.com or call 309-629-9000. Many no-tillers complain eerily seeded cover crops result in poor stands and don't provide a consistent return on investment. But after studying many of these stand failures for the last several years, Damon Reby says there are strategies and methods no-tillers can employ to dramatically increase the chance of getting better stands. The aerial cover crop applicator and co-owner of Dairyland Aviation from Waupon, Wisconsin will explain the necessary steps to ensure a successful cover crop stand, including what seed species work best when broadcast, the best timing of application, how sunlight can affect success rates, and what soil types have the greatest success rate. He'll also touch on what seed predators to scout for prior to application. While enjoying this program, I also encourage you to download a PDF of Damon's presentation provided on the No-Till Farmer website landing page for this podcast, so you can follow along and learn what more you can do to ensure successful aerial cover crop applications. And one of the things that I thought would be real valuable is to better understand the equipment that's used on fixed wing aircraft for spreading the seed how we go about testing for uniformity. And those first two things, I think, would help you select an aerial applicator that you'd feel comfortable with putting out cover crop seed for you. If you know how the airplane's set up and you know about the testing process, so you can talk to your aerial applicator and find out, are you doing dry work? And if so, have you tested your pattern? We've got kind of a five-step process that we use for interseeding in the fall in Wisconsin, and I think it applies to anywhere you're going to go about doing it. And then we're going to talk about the effect of predators on stands. And we've got some pretty interesting photos, and I think you'll find it kind of enlightening. And I put this last part on here, nothing derogatory about Wisconsin. Just remember the geography that I'm speaking of. You know, we're in a winter hardiness zone of about four and five. There's some winter hardiness zone three. So it's cold climate. The principles that we're going to talk about can apply to anywhere, but my experiences are based on what we've done only in Wisconsin, because that's the only place we've been working. So talking about the equipment, this device that you see here is the inlet to the spreader, and that mounts on the bottom of the airplane. This is the bottom of the hopper, and that gate right there is used for two different things. In the event of an emergency when we're spraying liquid, we can use that to jettison our load. And when we do dry fertilizer and seed, we use this gate to meter how much dry material comes out of the hopper. 
So that's how we adjust the rate at which the seed comes out. This stainless steel device here, the seed falls out of this gate and it gets divided into these various compartments. And this throat is a venturi. Hard to probably see scale, but ultimately from the bottom of the spreader to the top of the gate is about this wide. We're taking all that 160 mile an hour air and we're jamming it into this small area and that's accelerating that air and that's where it's getting mixed with the seed. These red dashed lines are the rivet lines for the veins. So this is with the spreader, of course, detached from the airplane, looking at it from above and the gate would be right there. The gate opens up, the seed falls through and it gets divided into these different compartments. Some seed goes through here, through this compartment and so on, all the way across that spreader and it basically just fans out the dry material. So it's not a very complicated device. We take the liquid spray gear off to put this dry spreader on the airplane and away we go. There's an airplane spreading seed and you probably have to ask yourself, how in the world could that possibly end up being uniform? <laughs> Which is a pretty reasonable question. Well, what we do is we do a lot of testing. So we take the airplane, we convert it to dry, we take whatever material it is that we're spreading, we put it in the hopper, and then we space these collectors out across the flight line that's 150 foot wide, and we put that out perpendicular to our flight path. And then we fly over those collectors with the gate open, releasing the dry material, in this case, the seed. That seed gets caught in those collectors, and at the bottom of every one of those collectors is a vial. Those vials are then weighed to the gram, and those results are put into software made for pattern testing for aerial application. And that software gives us an output of our best spread pattern. So in this case, you can see over here on the far left side, there was very little deposition and then there was more and more deposition and then across the top is fairly flat with a shoulder here. This is that 150 foot wide flight line and there's real nice uniformity. Our typical coefficients of variation on our spread pattern, we want to be somewhere in the single digits. I don't ever want to see anything double digits. So I'm operating on my aircraft anywhere from about three to 9%. That's a fairly uniform spread pattern. I kind of think a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So when this is done properly, when the aircraft is set up correctly and it's been pattern tested, this is spring barley flown into a sweet corn field. And so uniformity is not an issue with an aircraft if it's done correctly. It's just a matter of making sure an applicator took the time to verify their uniformity. If we have adjustments to make after we've done the testing, all we do is simply move these veins. <laughs> it's a real simple process. By widening one compartment, you put more seed in a light spot and you put less seed in a heavy spot. Not rocket science, just have to put the time in to get it right. So, Kind of back to uh, the fact that you guys are a national audience and we're kind of into this five-step process of doing some interseeding with an aircraft. We have to first decide what seeds are going to work, period, if they're broadcast. And when I got involved in this in about 2010, I had a friend of mine refer me to this book. And maybe many of you in this room have read this book, but I find it to be a real helpful resource. And what it is is just a book that is a collection of research from across the country. And it'll talk about each seed species as a cover crop, what it's been used for in different farming scenarios throughout the United States. You can actually download this book for free 
and put it on your computer. So it's a real handy resource. It's not hard to track down, and it's got a lot of really good information. So the first step is we have to decide what seed species can we broadcast and expect to grow, right? You decided you want to use an aircraft to do some interseeding. You first have to decide what it is you're going to put on. And what I've come to the conclusion on making these decisions is it's real simple. In this book right here, Managing Cover Crops Profitably, that's where all these charts came from. And I look for something real simple. I look at the planting depth. This column right here is planting depth. Anytime the minimum planting depth in this chart exceeds three quarters of an inch, you're dealing with a seed species that just isn't gonna grow laying on top of the soil. So most of our grass species we have real good luck with. Our brassicas are no problem broadcast. Our clovers are real good, but look here at cowpeas, requires a planting depth of an inch, right? I've never had any success with any form of a pea. Basically a large seeded legume needs incorporation into the soil. So if you're gonna go broadcasting, whether it's aerial or otherwise, a large seeded legume in a mix, that's probably not likely that it's gonna work because it needs to be planted. Field peas, same thing. So we've got a lot of options. If you look at this chart, there's a lot of seeds to pick from, right? So now you have to say, okay, we know what our options are. It's pretty much everything known to man except for large seeded legumes. Now let's talk about where is your farm? Is your farm in northern Wisconsin? Is your farm in Texas? Where are you, right? Again, in this book, it takes each one of the seed species and talks about what winter hardiness zone will this cover crop grow over winter in. It also talks about whether or not the seed species is drought tolerant and how shade tolerant it is. My experience has been the greater the drought tolerance of that plant species, the better luck you're gonna have, and the better it does in the shade, the better luck you're gonna have. You're gonna be broadcasting these seeds into the shade and you don't know exactly when it's gonna rain. So those are other considerations when you're picking these seeds. I threw up the winter hardiness zone map. That's also in this book. Okay, we've picked you know, an applicator that's familiar with handling dry material. We've picked the seed species that we want. We know that it's appropriate for the crop that we're seeding into. We know that it's appropriate to the area, the winters that we have. So now we need to pick a rate. And what I've found back in this Managing Cover Crops Profitably book, if you go to these charts, with the exception of annual ryegrass, most of the seeding rates you see in the drilled column work really well as a cover crop. These broadcast rates, when you get a catch, are gonna be far more cover crop than you're interested in. Those are rates that when it grows, that's not a cover crop, that's a crop. These rates over here, I would be real happy in the middle of these rate ranges on the drilled section with the exception of annual ryegrass. Same hold true with the brassicas as well as your legumes in regards to our experiences using those tables in the book. Next thing we need to make sure, particularly with annual ryegrass, we need to make sure that the seed's gonna come in contact with the soil. So as no-till farmers, you may have a lot of residue on your soil. This photo right here is a mix of annual ryegrass, crimson clover, 
and radish. The rate of the annual ryegrass was approximately 15 pounds per acre, and there was another eight pounds split evenly between radish and crimson clover. This was flown into soybeans. The previous year's crop across this field was corn. And if you notice, right in this area is really a very, very poor, almost non-existent stand. We have a beautiful stand right here, and then an extremely spotty, poor stand over on this side. What happened here, previous, this was actually not corn in this area, that was actually a fence line. So that fence line right here had been removed prior to the planting of the soybeans. So of course, after the grower removed the fence line, he did some tillage, restored that land into a level plantable seed bed, planted his soybeans, I flew over the whole thing, and look what we had here. Over here, what we noticed was we had a lot of that annual ryegrass sitting on top of the previous year's corn residue never made it to the ground. This is a real issue. It's less of an issue with your larger seeded grasses, your small grains, cereal rye, wheat, triticale, oats, barley, they can stand being on top of some residue. What happens is even if they don't touch the soil, they'll germinate, begin to grow, and there's enough starch in that seed for the root to find its way to soil before it dies. Annual ryegrass is a smaller seed and just doesn't have that same amount of starch within it in order to survive that process. Fifth and probably most important thing in my opinion and based on my experience has been putting the cover crop seed out there at the right time. And we're all thinking that the earlier we put the seed out the better. But what I've found is this seed needs to be placed in the field at a point where within two weeks after it germinates it can get some access to some sunlight. And if you think about this, in your bean crop, your corn crop, whatever crop it is that you're raising, once that crop fully canopies and shades out the ground, whatever weeds germinate are controlled by that shade. Those weeds typically die in the shade. Well, the same fate will happen to your cover crop. If you put the seed out, it germinates, begins to grow, and can't get access to sunlight. These plants need access to sunlight in order to grow. So I have kind of a, just a general rule of thumb is that within two weeks after that seed has germinated, that canopy has to open up enough to let some sunlight in for that plant to survive. Both of these photos that are on the left and the right side of the screen were taken at the same place. What we had done the 6th of September of 2013 in this silage corn field is we put out two bushels of spring barley. To give you an idea of the silage corn, the height of this stuff, it's 14 foot tall silage corn. That is how big it was. This stuff is huge. It's on 20 inch rows. This is a real high production field, a very dense canopy. This photo was taken on the 25th of September. The planned harvest date of this silage corn was September 18th. So the grower intended on going and taking that silage off on the 18th of September. So we planted on the 6th, 12 days later in theory, all of that silage should be harvested and that crop should have access to sunlight. So you notice how the picture was taken on the 25th. And if you look really closely, you can actually, in some of these photos, if we were able to zoom in, you can actually still see part of the seed laying on the ground. And if you notice, 
each one of these barley leaves is just one singular leaf going straight up and they're very long and just to give you an idea they're approximately 10 inches 8 to 10 inches tall what's happened is this barley plant is actually competing for sunlight with the corn so it's using all of its plant energy to go up when I started pulling on these plants the roots were only in the soil between a quarter and a half inch deep so it's extremely shallow rooted with a really long leaf trying to get to sunlight. This photo again was taken on the 25th of September. We're now actually about 19 days after planting. This rained actually shortly after we put the seed out there. So we're, we're in that 18 to 19 days from the time that it germinated and this thing's still sitting in the shade. The grower that had me fly it on called up and said, hey, we're trying to decide if we should harvest on Saturday the 28th or can we wait until Monday and I got that phone call on the 27th so I said you know I was just out there a couple days ago things were fine I think you'd probably be good to wait till Monday but why don't I go back out there and look so I drove back out to the field and this photo was taken on the 27th so just two days later and look what's happening to that barley it's dying right and here's my thinking of what's going on because that root is so shallow this plant is actually dying from drought stress. There's lots of soil moisture, but in the first quarter to a half inch, it's dry as a bone because it hasn't rained for four or five days, right? So we're beginning to lose plants. So this got me real curious. Remember how I said the planned harvest date was the 18th of September? Okay, they harvested, they went out to harvest on the 18th, the silage was too wet. That's what stopped the harvest. So this photo was also taken on the 27th, kind of reference. This photo was taken the same day this photo was taken, but where the silage had already been harvested. So everything's flown the same, same rate, same seed, same field. We're just a few feet away where it had access to sun. And if you notice, each one of these plants has got a couple leaves out. They're only about four inches tall, not even. But the roots are down about six inches. So what that plant did when it got access to sunlight, rather than growing up, it started making a root like it should. Well, what difference does that make? Well, here's the difference. I pounded this flag right at the edge of where that previous photo was taken. So here they harvested on the 18th. And notice the stand of spring barley there. We've got a really, really thick stand of spring barley. It's really healthy. I don't have a problem with this over here, but you can clearly see that we lost a lot of plants. It's a much thinner stand where the harvest happened just 10 days later. It's a big emphasis on access to sunlight. I use this silage corn example because it's real extreme. If we were going into grain corn, we wanna wait until the plant has senesced up to the ear. So you've got those lower leaves of the corn plant, those leaves have started to senesce and started to bend down. The upper leaves within a couple weeks are going to start to die back. There's going to be more sunlight coming through that canopy, allowing that cover crop to do better. Soybeans, we want to wait till about the time the soybeans are turning or mostly turned at the earliest for the same reason. If those leaves stay on the soybean plant, a long time after that plant's germinated and it doesn't get access to sunlight, those plants are going to die. And you can apply this concept to whatever crop it is that you're trying to interseed into. 
you got to keep in mind that these things are going to need access to sunlight. Now, is there an exception to that? Absolutely. I think that if we would have got a little rain shower, this would have kept growing. It would have had a little water and have been fine. But you're going to need some pretty reliable <laughs> rain showers in order to keep this, to keep this going, in my opinion. We'll be joined by conversation with aerial seeding expert Damon Reby in a moment, but I wanted to take time to once again thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for supporting our No Till Farmer podcast series. Calmer Cornheads is home of the world's first 12 and 15 inch cornheads and residue management upgrade kits. Their patented BT chopper stalk rolls cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti like residue for accelerated decomposition and have been voted to the no-till product of the year list five times by farmers across America. As your cornhead specialist, Calmer is committed to providing proven solutions to a variety of your harvesting problems and offers a 100% satisfaction guarantee. For more information, visit calmercornheads.com or call 309-629-9000. Now let's get back to Damon's presentation as he shares some important tips on assessing the results of aerial cover crop applications including using measurables such as grain corn harvest date, residue distribution in no-till fields, and scouting for evidence of seed predation caused by earthworms and slugs. So let's see what we did so far. We picked a competent applicator that knows how to handle dry material. You know you're going to get a uniform job. We picked the correct seed type for what we want, what our goals are. We picked the correct rate, and we put it on at the correct time. So what could go wrong? <laughs> well, let me tell you. This is what I, how I spend most of my spring. Just to give you an idea, this is a fellow from Land County Conservation District. This is a fellow from the NRCS. This guy, he's the fellow that administered the payment. This is the farmer, and this is me phoning a friend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no cover crop to be found, right? So part of learning about this and, and getting this so that when you make the decision to aerial seed into your crops, to ensure success, what we have to do is go out and look at the failures. That's the only way we're going to figure this out, is to go out to the fields where it didn't grow and figure out what the hell happened. So we did all these other things correctly. What was it? Well, first thing I'm going to talk about is grain corn residue. I would like to tell you that I am such a good pilot that I could actually seed that right to that line. Does anybody here believe me? <laughs> Well, what happened was we, of course, seeded all the way across this field. This photo was taken a few days prior to this photo, and you can see that we have spring barley growing here in the grain corn, right? So we put the seeds out, the plants senesced, we're getting sunlight penetration into the canopy. These aren't perfectly healthy plants, but they're doing well. This is approximately middle of November. We've got really short days, fairly cold temperatures, but our cover crop hasn't gone into dormancy yet, right? It's still actively growing, and that's important. So now, a couple days later, we harvest this, and particularly with chopping heads, we lay all this residue on top of the cover crop. This cover crop doesn't have enough day length or heat units to grow back through the residue. It's like laying a blanket on your lawn. It's over. No more cover crop. It's dead. Another example, look at the rate here. This is 30 pounds of cereal rye aerially applied into grain corn. Remember how I said you don't need a lot of seed when it works? It's gonna work. When it doesn't, it's not. So 
over on this side of the photo, we had a harvest date of the 6th of October. We flew all this on on the 10th of September, all the way across the field. The field was harvested on October 6th, except for this strip right here, and there's another strip you can't see, okay? This was left until the 14th of November. It was not harvested until the 14th of November, a little over a month later. The reason why it was left out there was for an insurance claim, so it was just an insurance strip. But notice how there's no cover crop growing here with the exception of these tram lines. This particular grower has tram lines where he's got a place for controlled traffic and those rows are wider. And in those wider rows, we had less residue and we had more sunlight penetration so it grew in those rows as well. So this is a beautiful cover crop, 30 pounds of cereal rye and the only difference between here and here is just when the residue was laid on top of the cover crop. This residue was laid on top of the cover crop when we still had heat units in day length for that rye to grow back through the residue. This was not. So what does that mean? Well, this is a pretty critical factor when you're making a decision as to whether or not you want to intercede. How early do you think you're going to harvest this crop? and what are the temperatures gonna be and what are your day lengths? Now in Wisconsin, you know, we're fairly far north in our latitude and so our day length is really shrinking. And I've done some research and actually day length is a pretty critical component to the growth of cereal grains. They need heat units, don't misunderstand me, but day length is, actually it's the length of the night that has a big impact on cereal grain growth. So, a big consideration is what's the residue going to be after the harvest and what are the growing conditions at that point. Okay, earthworms are our friends, right? You're all no-till growers and you know how important earthworms are. They are also the ultimate no-till drill. <laughs> so remember that picture where I'm standing at the truck trying to figure out why nothing worked? Okay, this was one of those field trips. So we're trying to figure out why is there nothing growing here? I mean, we put the seed out there, the beans had turned, we had rainfall, everything should indicate that this should be working. So we get a shovel out and we dig up one of these earthworm mittens and you can see the earthworm channel coming down here. There's the seed. <laughs> what is the seed doing three and a half inches below the surface of the soil? And of course, here's the plant trying to find its way to the surface and the light bulb goes on. I've had a lot of calls from my customers where I've flown the seed on in the fall and then I follow up and you know when harvest is over and I say hey how'd the cover crop look and they're like you know Damon it actually didn't work very good at all. I'm really pretty disappointed. So I'm thinking man that's that's not good this isn't good for my cover crop seeding business. So then come spring I somehow get the fortitude to give the guy another call just to see if he might want to try it again right. So the guy's like, yeah, I, I want to do this. You wouldn't believe how good it looks. It all greened up this spring. I'm like, well, how in the hell did that happen? Well, what happened was earthworms took some of the seed down. That plant simply hadn't emerged yet. And about half of you don't believe a word I'm saying, and I don't blame you. Um, but but the, this is, this is an earthworm mitten. Here's the seeds. Notice how there's no seeds anywhere in here. Notice how all the seeds have been gathered around this hole. I think a few more of you believe me now, okay? But it gets better. Now here's a few plants emerging. I didn't put them there. I can't possibly put them in little three-inch circles. 
<laughs> it doesn't work that way. The, the earthworms really did move them. And then here's what we're seeing in the spring. And here's what happens. The grower thinks that they have a really nice cover crop stand because the field turned green, okay? The problem is the earthworms didn't take all of the seed. They took some percentage of it. What that is, I don't know. But notice how these are all clumps of rye. And look at how big an area there is in between the clumps. Is it a stand failure? Absolutely not. But this isn't really the distribution that we're looking for. Now, what do we do about this? This is not your whole cover crop stand. The earthworms don't take all of the seed and bring it into their bins, but they are gonna take some percentage of it. So you just need to be aware of it. There's nothing I would do about this. You just need to know that this is taking place. So in these failures, what happened to the rest of the seed? The slugs ate it. And it took about four years of walking fields before I actually noticed it. This photo right here in the back, you may not be able to see this, but this is my thumb and forefinger holding a cereal rye seed, and that's the germ end of the seed. And the hull is missing, and the inside of the seed is exposed. And I'm holding the seed trying to figure out what in the world happened. And what went through my mind was, hey, maybe the seed falling through my hopper is knocking the germ end off. Maybe we've got a big problem. So I'm like, this has got to be looked into. Well, I started looking a little bit closer, and look what I found. Here's a slug, here's a cereal rye seed. It's actually, I'm watching it eat the germ end of the seed. I'm watching this take place. Now, I'm gonna give you all a few seconds to figure out how many slugs are in this picture. We have a total of six slugs, and if you get an idea of the scale, that's a cereal rye seed, right there. I mean, we're not even looking at a square foot, and there's six of these things crawling around there. This is not a no-till field. This is at the airport. Remember how I said we farmed vegetables for processing? It was in the 80s and 90s, and my grandpa was a farmer from the time he was a little boy, and we used tillage. Not proud of it, I'm just saying this is what happened. The fellow that he rented the farm to is working his way towards no-till, but the point is, is that this is a conventionally tilled field. And this is the slug population in the field. So I saw this. And we immediately got together with NRCS and UW and we started driving basically the state of Wisconsin where with all of our maps of everything we did and we could correlate the lack of a stand to the presence of the slugs. This is real. What's cool about this presentation is you guys were probably in the general session and that there was that gal from the University of Ohio. Did you guys notice the slide where they were measuring the slug feeding and it starts over here in the spring and there's slug feeding and then it kind of goes and tapers off for the middle of the growing season. And then in September and October, the graph went like that. Okay, that's when we're putting the seeds out. So the result of this walking around and putting these two and two together was this publication by the NRCS in conjunction with the University of Wisconsin. And basically they went out and they said, yeah, this is happening, we're finding slugs feeding on the germ end of cereal rye seed. What do you do about it? You need to scout. So what I'm telling my growers is when somebody calls me and says, I'd like it aerial seed, we have to scout for slugs. We have to know if they're there. There are some options, there are some things that we can do once we know that they're there, but there's not a bunch of great options. First option is 
pick a seed species that the slugs don't eat. So as time went on, we started then experimenting with, okay, we've been using cereal rye primarily as a cover crop in Wisconsin because it's the most likely seed species to overwinter where we're at. We've got really cold temperatures with not a lot of snow cover where I'm at in particular. So cereal rye is our go-to cover crop seed. Well, we're thinking they're eating it. We've got to try something different. So we spread oats and barley and wheat and triticale all in the same place where we had a lot of slugs. What we found was the slugs will eat it all, but they start with your winter annual seeds that don't have a husk. An oat seed and a barley seed has that husk, and that protects the germ end a little bit. There must be something else biologically that I don't know that's taking place, but they seem to like the rye, the wheat, and the triticale. They eat that first, then they go to the oats and the barley. What we've noticed when we've put out mixes with vetch and with radish, they don't seem to bother those seed species. I can't tell you about clover because I haven't actually went out to look at it for that specific purpose. Oh, by the way, annual ryegrass, they don't I'm not saying they wouldn't eat annual ryegrass, the, the leafy part of the grass, but they don't seem to eat the germ end before it even germinates. <laughs> we aren't using these seed species much in Wisconsin out of the airplane because we're running out of growing season in order to get these things established and doing something for you. But in maybe Indiana or Illinois or southern states, these are very viable options that you've got plenty of growing season to make work. I'm telling guys, if you've got slugs and we're running out of time, drill. So if you have the option of drilling your cover crop, drill your cover crop. Don't get an airplane out there. I'm going to make that real clear. If you've got the manpower and the time and the equipment, you're going to need a drill. We're broadcasting seeds with airplanes. You're laying them on top. There's risk associated with that. Next thing I'm going to talk about is another option that we've just started the first time. We've done a lot of frost seeding of clover into wheat in the spring. But I got to thinking, why not frost seed cereal rye or spring barley in the spring? So we did. <laughs> this is a photo taken. We frost seeded March 22nd of 2017. This is about a month later. This is into soybean stubble. So what happens when you do a frost seeding, the slugs and the earthworms are dormant. So the seed is unadulterated. Notice how it's broadcast uniformly, right? I mean, they're not, the seeds aren't clumped up. Notice how thick the stand is. All of these seeds, they germinated and started to grow. So we lost the fall growth, which is a big problem, I realize. But if it didn't grow at all, or you don't have time to plant it in some other method, or the ground's frozen by the time you get done harvesting, this is an actual viable option. This is that same field with this photo was taken on May 28th and you'd probably say to yourself, something should be planted by now, which I agree. And this happened to be a field that was going into late sweet corn. But you can use your imagination on how you might wanna manage this on your farm. But this frost seeding, I think is a very viable option. We used cereal rye in these examples I'm showing you. And what I liked about cereal rye, if you plant cereal rye late enough in the spring and it germinates and begins to grow and doesn't vernalize, it will remain vegetative. And if cereal rye doesn't go reproductive, the carbon to nitrogen ratio stays very low. When you kill this, whatever nitrogen that this has trapped in its organic matter is pretty likely to be given back to your field. So I'm kind of excited about this. It's too early to, to say that this works or doesn't work, but this was year one and we were pretty happy with it. 
This was cereal rye flown into corn residue on that same day. And the grower left me this one small strip and this is beans that were no-till planted into the corn residue and they no-tilled right across here. He didn't actually kill this until it was, oh, I don't know, a foot and a half tall and, and he marked that and we took photos of it from the air and the overall health of the beans was good. This grower was so happy with this that we're doing his entire farm late March, early April. So something to consider. Last point I want to make is, hey, this obviously only works if there's a lot of rain, right? So I'm going to go through a little, here's a couple bushels of spring barley that was put onto sweet corn mid-September. Sweet corn harvested a week later. This photo was taken the end of October. Here's a couple bushels of spring barley put into soybeans. I want to point something out that's, I think, really important. Notice the streaking here? That's not me, <laughs> okay? how the residue on your farm gets spread has a lot to do with the stand. So if the residue isn't getting spread evenly, you're not gonna end up with an even stand. But anyway, we've got a nice stand here. Here's 33 pounds of rye mixed with 27 pounds of spring barley, spread over grain corn. This is the corn residue. All of this was in 2013, those previous photos. All those stands I would consider as successful cover crop stands. So you're saying to yourself, well, it had to have been a wet fall, right? Well, it wasn't. This is rainfall data taken from the locations south central Wisconsin where the, all this work was done. Here's average rainfall right here, and then this is the departure below or above average rainfall. So in the month of July, we were an inch and a half below average rainfall. Of course, we hadn't seeded yet, but I'm just leading up that we've got dry weather in July. We're two and a half inches behind your average monthly rainfall for August which by the way, the average monthly rainfall for August is three inches. So we've had a half inch in August. And in September, we're about an inch behind your average rainfall, okay? Which is when we planted, and then a little bit drier than normal in October. My point is, all these previous photos were taken on a dry summer and fall. Obviously, you have to have rain to get the seed to germinate, but you don't need an inch every five days. You need a nice soaker to get the seed germinated and get it started, and, and it'll take care of itself. So I've had a lot of people say, well, wouldn't it worked if it wouldn't have been such a wet fall? That's not the case. Now, 2012, I don't know what it was like for everybody in the entire country, but I know in Wisconsin that was an extreme drought. We had stuff that didn't grow that got drilled. You know, it's not going to grow when there's no rain. Don't misunderstand me. Just please leave knowing that you don't need a series of monsoon rains to make this work. In successful no-till systems, you can't overstate the importance of distributing residue evenly during harvest. And I think that's one of the more important tips Damon shared is the negative effect poor residue spreading can have on aerial cover crop seeding and stands. If you're looking for helpful tips and information to help you succeed with all facets of cover crop management, find out what the National No-Tillage Conference has to offer. Register online today for just $304 and $85 savings off the full rate. Save even more when you register additional farm family members for just $279. Or complete and return the downloadable registration form by going to notillconference.com. To register by phone or to speak with an NNTC staff member, please call 262-432-0388 or email your questions to nntc at no-tillfarmer.com.
In the final portion of this No-Till Farmer podcast, let's briefly revisit some of the questions attendees at the 2018 National No-Tillage Conference asked aerial cover crop application expert Damon Reby about coated versus uncoated legumes in aerial applications, why no-tillers might not always see cover crops emerging in field edges or headlands, and what approach he takes to flying on annual ryegrass, along with several other questions. The first question attendees of the National No-Tillage Conference asked Damon was if he noticed a difference in stand establishment with coated versus uncoated legumes in aerially applied cover crop seed. I have not noticed any difference in stand establishment with coated versus uncoated legumes, but I also don't do a lot of broadcasting of legumes. So in Wisconsin, you know, let's say we're out there in the fall, middle of September, and that's the earliest that we've got the corn senest up to the ear. We're kind of running out of growing season to get those things going. I do sell seed. I specifically try to get it without the coating, brassicas and legumes. I want it inoculated though. If it's a legume, it needs to be inoculated. The reason why I kind of shy away from the coatings is if you get the seed tag, sometimes there's like a third of it is a coating. <laughs> and I'm thinking I want, you know, as many seeds as possible to get out there. The next question attendees asked Damon is what height he ideally tries to fly at when broadcasting cover crops through the air. So when I'm doing edge work where the seed that's in my airplane might affect the neighbor's farm, I drop down to a real low height similar to spraying to keep the seed from spreading out beyond the edge. And if we were to go to the very beginning slide, you saw the airplane up higher. In order to get the perfectly uniform deposition, that seed, you have to be high enough that all of the lateral energy is taken out of it. So you get as much spreading as possible. So I need to be at least 50 feet for that to get done happening. So you'll see me, I'll come over the top of tall hardwood trees and I won't even go down because I need that to completely get done spreading out. But if I do that on the edge of the field and your neighbor's got wheat and we're putting rye in there, now I'm contaminating your neighbor's field. So then I'll drop down real low and I can get it, you know, if I drop down to about three feet, the seed won't go past the wingtip. Damon says he often gets complaints from customers about cover crop seed not apparently being applied to field edges. Here's his take on what might be happening in the field. Speaking of edges, I've had a lot of customers say, well, you didn't get the edge. And I'm like, well, did you go out either while I was doing the application or immediately after? Well, no. Okay, that's fine. You hired me to do a job. I, I totally get it. On end rows where the soil's compacted, where there's high levels of compaction, you are not going to get a good take. So before you figure your aerial applicator didn't do a headland, you might want to just take a peek at it right after they did the application to see if the seed's there. You know, I mean, I'm not saying we're perfect. We're going 150 miles an hour. So, but bear in mind that, that you will sometimes see headlands won't look very good and it may not have anything to do with the actual quality of the application itself. Another question attendees asked Damon is how the age of the plane or speed affect aerial seeding coverage. I think it kind of goes back to the setup. I actually do have one 1970s model prop plane that I use to train new applicators. And that airplane doesn't do actually as nice a job as these airplanes do. But the big thing is nothing really to do with the engine or the speed. Everything to do with taking the time 
to set it up for a uniform distribution, which I've made as many attempts with a new aircraft and a new spreader design, as many as 20 attempts to get those vanes in the right spot. What's happened in aerial application is the value of this equipment has gotten so high that all you have as an applicator is your job, the quality of your work, that's all you have. So if you can't take the time to do this, you're probably not gonna be in business very long. Your fungicide's gonna streak, your herbicide's gonna streak, your fertilizing's gonna streak. So I think just asking the aerial applicator, do you do dry pattern testing? Have you handled this seed species? Are you sure it's gonna be uniform? It's a pretty honest group of guys and they wanna do this. We all wanna do this. This fall seeding fits perfectly in a Midwest spray business. I mean, perfect. So this is something that we're all highly motivated to do. Now, are there bad experiences? I'm sure, but by and large, it can be done nicely. Attendees also asked Damon what swath width does he aim for when seeding annual ryegrass and at what wind speed does he quit applying? I cannot get it to spread wider than 50 foot. And that annual ryegrass, because it's so light, is the most stressful seed species to fly that there is. You'll spend days on end tracking this light bar at 150 miles an hour, 50 feet in the air. And when I get more than four foot off, if that thing says five feet, I close the gate, pull up, turn around, try lining up again. And to spend hours and hours and hours at that speed, at that level of accuracy is pretty fatiguing. Wind speed, seven miles an hour, just park it. That ain't gonna work. I mean, it goes everywhere. I prefer not to handle it from that standpoint. It's so limiting on the amount of time that you have. The advantage to annual ryegrass, in addition to being a really good cover crop species, is you're putting it out at a light rate so you can put a lot of acres in the hopper. So it's not like I don't wanna put out annual ryegrass. We have other limitations with annual ryegrass in Wisconsin. You'll have one grower that's planting annual ryegrass because they know that it's gonna winter kill and then some of it makes it through the winter, and that's annoying, right? And then you have another guy that bought the real winter hardy stuff and says, okay, I'm, I know this is gonna make it through the winter, and it doesn't. You can actually go to northern Wisconsin where they've got snowpack, and annual ryegrass survives no problem, which just happens to be where I'm at. It's a little hard to, to rely on it making it through the winter. A final question posed to Damon has to do with the soil. Are there some soil types where aerial cover crop seeding just won't work? My experience is I have not found slugs on sand, <laughs> okay? So when I do aerial seeding into sandier soils, it's awesome. I mean, it works really, really well. I'm really happy with the results. We've got clay and we've had good success on you know, more clay type loam. You know, we do it on a celery marsh, which is all high organic muck soil, rye and barley and radish. We have great success with that. And then just regular loam soil, prairie loam, it's great as long as something doesn't eat it. We'd like to sincerely thank Damon for sharing important strategies and considerations for increasing the success of aerial cover crop application in no-till systems. For those listeners who'd like to hear more about successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 
1-800-242-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up with the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Damon Reby, Calmer Cornheads, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Doberstein. Thank you for listening. <laughs>